Good afternoon. Just one brief announcement before we begin our worship, and that is to keep your eyes uh, on your email concerning the uh, services, upcoming services of the church, um, the way things are uh, unfolding. Uh, be a good idea for uh, for you to just uh, keep your eyes open on that, and uh, in case there are any changes to uh, our upcoming services. Well, with that aside, let's take our hymnals and turn to hymn number 616, and let's sing this praise to God, hymn number 616. Father, as we come before you as our God and our Heavenly Father, we first and foremost thank you for your past blessings to us and to our church and to our nation. And Lord, we uh, would uh, say that it is hither by your help that we have come, that it is by your sheer goodness, it is by the strength and the grace which you give that we stand before you today in this place as your people. And Father, we thank you for all of the many blessings that you have heaped upon us, material and spiritual, and we ascribe them as all coming from your hand. We see you, Lord, as the heavenly giver of all good gifts, uh, the one who uh, feeds us, the one who clothes us, the one who provides for us tenderly each and every day, 
And Lord, most of all, the one who has given his son to make provision for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that we stand forgiven in Christ. We thank you that in him we have hope and eternal life. And we ask, Lord, that now as we would worship you for this short time, that you would give us grace and help to remember your goodness to us and to set our minds and our hearts upon you as you have loved us so much, so richly in giving us your son, as you have loved us in days past, even till now, we pray that we would return uh, that love with our love to you and that our worship would be pleasing to you uh, and that our worship would be done in faith and that we would come before you with great confidence as we uh, know that our sins are forgiven in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 64, a very brief psalm, a psalm of David. And this is another psalm uh, where David is in trouble. And uh, we've noted many times in the past that it is uh, trouble, it is trial, it is difficulty, it is hardship, it is concern that drives David to the Lord. And that uh, David is able to praise the Lord even in the midst of those things as he sets in mind and heart upon who God is and his attributes. And here in this uh, psalm, it is the machinations of the enemy that drives David to praise God. And the emphasis here in this chapter is the secret plotting of the enemy. And often it is what is taking place behind the scenes that scares us the most when those uh, are, are against us. And we know that they're plotting, they're scheming, something's going on, there's whisperings, uh, there's, there's conferences. And we don't know what's going on, but, but we've heard that, uh, that they're plotting against us. And it, it is these times that cause us great concern. When they will strike and what they will do and how they will do it, when all of that is a mystery, but we know it's coming, that gives us great alarm. And many times, often our minds run when this is taking place. And we start uh, questioning uh, what's, what's going to happen. We start thinking of all these different situations and scenarios. And uh, many times it even leads us to uh, conspiracy theories. We think something is, is more than, than is taking place. But uh, this is what David is dealing with here. And you'll notice in this psalm that instead of fear, David has confidence because he believes that God is real and that God is able to uh, intervene in his situation. And David knows that when God's strong enemies attack, that there is an infinitely stronger God in heaven who will come to his aid and the aid of his people. When they shoot their arrows, and the picture here is they're in secret and they're plotting in secret and they're hiding and they, they, they pop out of nowhere and they shoot their arrows at David. And when they shoot their arrows, however, uh, the righteous God, this psalm tells us, will shoot his arrows back at them and will protect them and will help David and his people. One commentator notes that in the New Testament, the truth here is expressed differently but the principle is the same. If God is for us, who can be against us? The practical application of this to the righteous is that there is no need for them to attempt to take vengeance on their enemies. Their one care is to trust God. And if we could only remember in times of trouble that God is there, that he will help us, that we need fear no one, and that all will be well, we will learn the secret of David's strength and his ability to praise God in the midst of any trouble. Well, let's turn now in our hymnals to hymn 753, sing an expression of this psalm, 753.
our time of intercessory prayer, we want to stay in the nation of Zambia and pray for the Grace Reform Baptist Church and the Copper Belt Ministerial College in Ndola, Zambia, with Pastor Kabwe Kabwe. We also want to uh, remember Pastor Randy Pizzino, a former a Pastor Pizzino, who is now uh, involved in uh, training men for the ministry in uh, Africa, his Equipping Pastors International Organization, uh, doing a lot of uh, training work and teaching men. And also we'll remember uh, the Capital City Rescue Mission ministry taking place at 4 o'clock, and Conrad Mbewe's ministry at the Pastors Fraternal in Grand Rapids, and we'll also, of course, remember our nation. So let's pray together. Our Father, as we think about the plight of the church in the world and remember how it is a a small flock uh, that is up against great odds, uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, every remembrance that uh, you are, are, are on our side and that if you are for us, who can be against us? And we thank you, Lord, that the spread of the gospel and the mission of the church is uh, not a a futile uh, attempt, a futile endeavor, but you are uh, even blessing your church in the midst of great opposition, great hostility, uh, much false religion, much apathy. Uh, And yet, Lord, you are calling your people out from the four corners of the world. The gospel is being heralded forth by preachers and men, and the voice of Jesus is being heard and responded to as the word is proclaimed. And many are turning to the living God in true faith. And we thank you for what you have done in Zambia in days gone by. We have heard of how there has been a revival in that nation. There has been a turning to you of many souls. And Father, we thank you for the ongoing work there. We thank you for the work in Ndola with Pastor Cobway. We ask that this church would remain committed to the Bible, to the scriptures, not moving away from the truth, not leaving the parts of the word out, and being influenced by earthly, man-made philosophy. But Lord, grant that that church would be wholly committed to preaching the whole counsel of God. And bless, Lord, we ask, that ministry, that many souls would hear the gospel message and respond in true faith. Bless Pastor Cobway, we pray, as he labors alone. Uphold his hands, we ask. And we pray as well for the Copper Belt Ministerial College, that this college would be greatly used uh, to train men for the ministry. And we think also of Pastor Bizzino uh, with his, uh, his efforts to, to teach men and train men. Oh, Lord, we ask that your word would be uh, taught and would be understood. We ask that this crucial ministry to pastors uh, would be greatly blessed of you, that you would give light and clarity, that you would make your word plain to these men, and that these men who are charged with uh, preaching to others and instructing others in the word, these men that uh, have great influence upon the churches of God and the people of God, would find great blessing as they are trained at this college and through Pastor Pizzino's ministry. Lord, we ask that your word would shine forth, would uh, herald forth from, uh, from that, that, uh, th- those, those efforts, and that you would call many sinners to yourself, and that you would strengthen the church. And Lord, we ask as well the same for Pastor uh, Mabewe's ministry at the Pastors Fraternal. We ask that this would be a good time of fellowship and the strengthening of bonds of many pastors from many different, different churches and different circles. And we ask that you would bless Pastor Mabewe, that as he opens up the word, that he would make plain the truth. And that that, and that that truth would be well received in the hearts and minds of these men. Lord, we think also of the Capital City Rescue Mission. We thank you for this open door. We pray it would not be shut. We pray that we would be able to, to go down and, and preach to the men once a month and bring them the gospel. 
And Father, we ask that uh, that would be what takes place today, that the gospel would be clearly uh, uh, opened up and that you would be pleased to call your your people to yourself uh, through this ministry and that you would be pleased also to bring great encouragement and great hope and great joy uh, to the people of God there, that their understanding of your word would be strengthened, that their their understanding of the Christian life would also uh, be better understood. Father, we pray also for our own nation and ask that you would continue to bless us, even us, Lord, even us who who have forsaken you in many ways. We have forgotten you in many ways, Lord. We have uh, disregarded your word. We have been enthralled with other religions and other things, with our own philosophies and our own ideas. And we pray, Lord, that uh, in these uh, days of trial and tribulation, that you would use this, these, uh, this judgment that you have sent to draw many minds off of themselves and off of the world and off of vanity and frivolities and idolatry. And Lord, call many, call many, we pray, to yourself through revival and through a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Lord, be gracious to us and bless us. Remember uh, your uh, goodness, Lord, that you have given your son to die for sinners. And we pray that uh, that uh, message would be heralded and that many would hear and believe. And we pray, Lord, for ourselves now, that as our brother comes in a few moments, that you would also remember us and help us in our weakness and in our need, that you would help our brother to open up the word faithfully, that we would be challenged from the scriptures, and that we would be happy to be challenged, that we would be happy to have your word come to us and search out our thoughts and our lives. Give us grace, we pray, to respond in faith to all that you would teach us through your servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's now turn in our hymnals to hymn number 582, hymn 582.
Amen. Please be seated. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we have uh, come out to hear your word, and uh, we thank you for all those who have come out, and indeed, we shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of your mouth, and so we pray you would speak to us and bless those who have gathered to hear, the, hear that word, and pray that uh, we would grow in grace, that we would grow closer to our Savior, that we would have a better view of our hope and our Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I have nothing, uh, I don't have any new revelation to give here. Um, this is a somewhat elementary message, but I think it's a very important message. Um, and it starts out basically that the most important question we must ask is what will happen to us when we die? Uh, we're going to die. Uh, God has ordained that we should die. It is appointed for men to die once. As Job says to God, as he's speaking to the Lord, he says, man, his days are determined. The number of months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Job 14.5. Now, of course, the reason that we're going to die is because of sin. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. God said and warned um, Adam that if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he's going to die. And he wasn't talking a mere spiritual death, though that's included, because you remember after Adam ate the fruit, uh, God then cursed him, and one of the curses was, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So he's speaking of a physical death, and that's the reason that we die in this world. It's part of the curse of sin, and that's the reason there's viruses in this world and why things don't work right. It's because of, because of sin. Now, as a result of sin, there's going to be a day of judgment for all. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this, judgment. Hebrews 9.27 God in Christ will assign us to heaven and to hell. And I just have you turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. Pastor Hill has uh, dealt with these verses recently, so I don't uh, seek to improve on what he said, but just to remind you of uh, this basic principle of how the Lord is going to assign us into one of two places. So in Matthew 13, in verse 41, and this is explaining the parable of the tares, the Lord Jesus Christ says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. So the, in these parables, one after another, you know, the idea is that this is the end of the age and Christ is returning. And so as he's judging the world, he's going to take out of his people, and we are his kingdom, um, those who commit lawlessness, in verse 42, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So he's speaking of eternal punishment. Hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. But what about his people? Well, this verse says in verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So in the final stage of Christ's kingdom, uh, that's where we will be, Lord, if we indeed endure to the end. Well, on what basis will we enter into that eternal state with our Lord Jesus Christ forever? Well, many put their trust in false hopes, in that which will never get them to heaven. And that brings me to this book I've been reading uh, recently. Um, I've read it many years ago. In fact, the, the book is 35 years old, so excuse the condition of it. Uh, but it's The Distinguishing Traits of Christian Character by Gardner Spring. Pastor Spring is a Presbyterian pastor in New York City back in the mid-1800s, early to mid-1800s. Uh, and many years ago, Pastor Allen, our former pastor, uh, assigned this book to us. <clears throat> and he did, I believe it was him, he did a uh, Sunday school series on this book. Now, there's copies of this book in our book room, and I highly recommend it. Um, my reason for reading this book, again, was that I wanted to challenge myself spiritually and to bring God's word to bear on the state of my soul. And I guarantee you, this book will address those issues. Uh, if, and so if you don't have the right hope, it'll put you under the table, as it were. But that's the goal of this message. It's not to rob us of our assurance and plunge us into despair. It's to deliver us from putting our hope in the wrong things. So this message is all about putting our hope and confidence in the right things. And when we do, it'll serve as an anchor for our soul to result in a joy and peace in believing and keep our assurance from being shaken if it's in the right place. So that's the goal of this message. And it's important, as Pastor Hill has recently pointed out, that we're to test ourselves to be, see if we be in the faith. And we want to make sure our hope in, is in the right place. Now, the way I'm going to lay this message out is I'm going to give four false hopes. And these are not all that Mr. Spring has laid out, but I'm just giving you a sampling of four false hopes that men put their trust in. And he tends to focus on men who have these false hopes and aren't real Christians. <clears throat> and then we're going to look at the one and only all-sufficient hope. And then finally, a few applications at the end. So let's look at a few of these false hopes. Um, and again, this is not a book review, by the way. I'm just going to take excerpts from this book and I'm using a broad, just a general outline that he has, uh, and, and I'm not even covering a, just a small portion of it today, <clears throat> and I deviate from it, so don't go to the book and then say, no, wait a minute, you didn't follow that book. Well, I'm not it's not my purpose to follow the book exactly. I'm just using it as a rough guide. So let's look at a few of these false ho hopes that men put their trust in. And the first one is visible morality. 
visible morality. Uh, now, back in the day, I used to be um, working in Illinois after, after college, and uh, I was teaching the Air Force, within the Air Force, and I went to church in this, uh, uh, it was a campus church on the University of Illinois, and we used to go on the campus and we'd witness there, and we'd have surveys, and that was a, an approach for witnessing back then that was popular. So we'd ask people, if you were to, to die today, on what basis would you convince God to let you into heaven? Well, the most popular response was, I'm a pretty good person. That was the most popular by far. The most, I, I haven't been as bad as my neighbor. I, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not perfect, but you know, I've led a pretty good life. So I used to call it the good guy syndrome. <laughs> and many people are like this. They say, I'm nice to people. I'm a good family man or woman. Uh, I'm, I'm a law-abiding citizen, and I pay my taxes, I give to charity, and I honor my parents, and I refrain from doing really bad things, you know, like I, I've never been a, a drug taker, I'm not a drinker, I'm not an alcoholic, uh, I've never murdered anybody, and I've never stolen anything, and I don't swear or look at pornography, and, and all the, the list goes on. Well, although these things are commendable and important, and we need to grow in our morality, we need to grow in the grace of, in, of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need, we need to grow in a life that reflects the Lord Jesus, such morality on its own does not necessarily reflect true conversion. And we can't put our hope in it. Now, the classic example is the rich young ruler. And I know you're very familiar with this, but I thought it would be worth uh, looking at that in Luke chapter 18, the rich, the rich young ruler. Luke 18, verse 18. It's a very familiar section of scripture, but it's good to remind ourselves here that this guy had an external morality. In verse 18, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then jumping up to verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ then asks him about his state as it reflects or measures up to the law of God, the second table of the law. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. This is the second table of the law. The Lord Jesus quotes it. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. So basically, he's strictly looking at the external aspects of the law, external morality. And we know from earlier chapters and earlier in the, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus says that the law goes beyond that, that the true intent of the law was the heart. And that it's not a matter of merely not murdering and stabbing somebody or shooting somebody in the head, but rather it's in the heart. If we hate our brother in our heart, we've committed murder against him. But you see, this guy didn't think in that way. He was strictly looking at external morality. So he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. 
But see, Jesus knew the law well. And he knew that there's a hard aspect to the Ten Commandments. Certainly the tenth one shall not covet, right? That's a hard issue. But also the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. It's a heart issue. And so what does Jesus say? When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, as we read in verse 23, this guy had an issue with that because he loved money more than God. And so it says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He walks away. And the assumption is he's not converted and he doesn't get eternal life because he loved his money more than God. He was an idolater. So he had an external morality. I mean, his neighbors probably says, oh, yeah, he's a great guy. He, he keeps all these commandments. Oh, yeah, I've never seen this guy uh, steal or, or he certainly hasn't murdered anybody. I mean, he's a good guy. But you see, it depends on the heart, whether external morality means true, a fruit of true conversion. And that's what spring tends to emphasize um, is describing how we can be moral and not be a Christian. So I'm just going to read this one, one section here. He says, he says, The sum and soul of obedience to the divine law consists in love to God. But the person whom we describe, that is the moralist, who's a moralist only, Though they may have some knowledge of God and may confess his worthiness to be loved, loved, they love almost everything else more than he. They have no supreme delight and complacency in his excellence. Well, we have to ask the question, are we moral because we love the law, Lord? Are we moral because we want to please him? Are we moral because we're thankful for what he's done for our soul? Or are we moral because that's what we've always been taught to do? I mean, we don't steal because we, you know, our parents taught us not to steal. It's just what we do. Or do, are we moral just to feel good about ourselves? Some people do that. Or so certain people will like us. Some people are moral because they have moral friends and they want those friends to like them, so they, they become moral too. Or is it to convince God to let us into heaven? And that's what this message is about. Some people put their trust in their morality, and they think, I'm a pretty good person. So God's got to let me in. Well, putting our hope of heaven on visible morality is sure death. While it is necess a necessary fruit of salvation, Morality by itself will never save us. Why? Well, you guys could tell me, because our morality is tainted with sin. Even if we were to be, in the eyes of the public, very moral persons, we know that inside our, our morality is tainted with sin, that we're imperfect, and that even 
when we do the right thing, sometimes our, our heart's motive isn't right. There's sin in everything we do. We have a mountain of sin. And furthermore, if indeed morality could get us right before God and get us into heaven, then we just run around and ask people to be good family men. <laughs> I mean, that's the logical conclusion, isn't it? We just say, well, if, if morality gets us into heaven, then all we need to do is tell people, run, you know, go outside in the neighborhood and say, just become a family man and you'll get to heaven. But see, that's a work salvation. And that's heresy. Because being a good family man by itself isn't going to get us there. No, he saved us not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And furthermore, if we just slip up in one area, we're guilty of all, right? Isn't that what James says? He who keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of all. Indeed, he says that. If we trust in our morality to enter heaven, we're sunk. Secondly, this is the second false hope that people rely on to get to heaven, and that's head knowledge. <clears throat> now, this may be more applicable to us, because sometimes underneath we'll, we can inadvertently or or just without thinking, start putting our confidence in what we know. The doctrines of grace. Some people see it as, as like a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. But it isn't. Now, it's, they're, we, they're precious. The doctrines of grace are wonderful. But they, they don't get, knowing them doesn't get us to heaven. We know our Bible well. And I remember when I was witnessing on the uh, campus of University of Illinois, I ran into this guy who was, let's, let's put it this way, he was plastered. I mean, he reeked of alcohol and, and he was stumbling. And I was, I was a young, I was young, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking I'm going to you know, help save this guy. <laughs> so we pulled into a little shop and we sat down for like a cup of coffee or something. And this guy, this guy had scripture. He was rattling off the Bible verses as he was swaying. I love the Bible, he says. But it's clear that, I mean, he, from every, every indication that he was an alcoholic. is in the middle of the day. We're well acquainted with the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Great document. But knowing it doesn't get us saved. We agree with all the sermons and the theology in the sermons. That's great. We need to be. All these things are important, but such knowledge doesn't necessarily reflect true conversion. A person can know all those things and not be a Christian. The, the uh, demons had good theology, but they trembled. And they don't bow to Christ and his authority. That, that was their issue. You see, they knew that he was the Christ. Do you remember the demons? 
He's casting out the demons, throwing them into the swine. And they said, we know who you are. You're the Christ, the Son of God. They had a perfect theology in that respect, but they weren't going to bow down to him and obey him. They were opposed to his ministry. Head knowledge, but the head knowledge didn't do him any good. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders had lots of head knowledge. Romans 2, you therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? They were teachers of the law. They had lots of head knowledge. They were teaching others about the Bible and, and the old covenant and the law. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? And see, what Paul was getting at is these teachers of the law, the Pharisees, on the outside, they, they, they appeared to have lots of knowledge and were filled with the Bible and the people oohed and odd over, over their um, religious religiosity. But lo and behold, the implication here is they were thieves. Jesus said, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say and do not. And then he calls them in Matthew 23, 15, sons of hell. Lots of knowledge teaching others, but sons of hell. Well, whether our knowledge is evidence of conversion is a matter of the heart. So Mr. Spring says this. While there is no spiritual knowledge, now he calls it speculative knowledge in the book. Um, it's really head knowledge. <clears throat> so I'm going to substitute that word for head, with head knowledge. While there is no spiritual knowledge where there is no head knowledge, there may be head knowledge where there is no spiritual. Head knowledge has its seat in the head. Spiritual knowledge has its seat in the heart. It is obvious there is no moral goodness in the simple assent of the understanding to truth. So again, as we evaluate ourselves, do we read our Bible because we want to hear God speak and teach us how to live? Do we believe God that it's good for our soul to read the Bible? Do we read the Bible because we want to learn about our sin and our Savior? Or do we read the scriptures to win an argument? Or do we read the scriptures to boast of our knowledge and impress others? Or just to say that we did it? Oh yeah, I read my Bible today. Now putting our hope of heaven on head knowledge is sure death. True Christians will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We need to have knowledge. So I'm not saying knowledge is unimportant. It is very important. Without knowledge, we can't understand God and who he is and Christ and who he is. We can't understand the gospel without knowledge. We can't know how to worship unless we have an understanding of what worship involves and what's pleasing to God in worship or how to live in a manner that's pleasing to Christ. We need that knowledge. But we can never say that everyone who knows Bible verses, as my friend back at the university, is going to heaven. This is work salvation, it's heresy, and 
Furthermore, our knowledge is tainted with sin. We don't have a good understanding necessarily of everything. We, we have personal biases. Uh, we only know, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we know in part. Then we shall know in full. So we don't know everything we're supposed to know. And we certainly don't have perfect motives in, in trying to gain knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so for this reason, it's, it's uh, an empty bottle to try to use knowledge to enter heaven. Well, thirdly, our third false hope that people put their confidences is the form of religion. And again, this uh, applies to us, I believe. I attend a good church. I say grace before my meals. I attend prayer meeting. I pray every day. I do devotions with the family. And these are all good. These are all critically important. But religious activities by themselves do not necessarily reflect true conversion. People can do all these things. Now, this is a good indication that you're on the right track, perhaps. But you can do all these things and not be a, a, a Christian, believe it or not. In our own experience, we've run into this. The Pharisees prayed publicly. Matthew 6, if you turn there, Matthew chapter 6. He's speaking of the hypocrites, which Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites. So my guess is he's thinking of the Pharisees. So in verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. So in other words, the praise that they're getting from, from men, that's, that's their reward. They're not going to get any praise from God. They're going to get their praise from men, and that's what they want anyway. So that's what Jesus is saying. As it says in 2 Timothy 3, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. True Christians will be increasingly faithful in these things. And neglect of these things is sure to undermine the Christian's spiritual condition. That's for sure. However, whether they're a, the fruit of true conversion is a matter of the heart. So again, we have to ask the question, do we pray over our meal because we're really thankful to God that he's put this meal on our table? <clears throat> or because that's what we've always done? No, we always pray for our meal. You know, my dad used to pray for the meal, and then, so I'm praying for the meal. But the, it's the matter of the heart. Are we praying for the meal so that we give thanks to God? Or do we tend a good church because we love the truth and want to honor and worship God and love to be with God's people? Or just to say that we went. Well, yeah, I went to church today. 
Or do we pray because we love God and want to meet with him and see him as the ultimate source of help, comfort, and guidance? Or do we pray because we have to? Or we want to impress our spouse that we're really righteous? Well, putting our hope of heaven on the form of religion is sure death. And Mr. Spring says this, It is a common and just maxim that men easily believe that to be right with which they wish to be right. To be, let's, let's say that again. It is a common and just maxim that men easily believe that to be right which that to be right which they wish to be right. That true religion consists in mere external forms is a very agreeable sentiment to a wicked heart. And it is not strange that multitudes should mistake error for truth and the way of death for the way of life. Well, otherwise we would be urging people, again, um, to do devotions with their families. If, that, if doing things like religious things gets us to heaven, then we'd run around and tell our neighbors, oh, you just got to do devotions with your family and then you'll get to, get to heaven. Well, again, that's work salvation and heresy. I'm trying to hit the point over and over again so you guys get what I'm saying. Even if we do these things, they're tainted with sin. Our devotions are tainted with sin. Our, you know, perhaps our heart isn't right in them. Um, and that's happened many a time. Perhaps we're sleeping through our prayer time. Perhaps we are uninterested. Perhaps we skip our prayer time because we just don't want to do it today. There's been many instances of sin in our life. And we need to grow in these things. We must grow in these things, but they're never the grounds of our acceptance with God. For these, This is a work salvation, and as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Galatians 3.10. Well, that brings us to the fourth, fourth false hope and its strong assurance of salvation. <clears throat> strong assurance of salvation. And many people will say this, I know I'm saved. I just know it. I can feel it. And it's good to have assurance, by the way. Me and God have an understanding. God is too loving to send me to hell. Have you ever heard that one? I remember the day and the hour I was saved. And I was there. <laughs> but strong assurance is not necessarily evidence of our conversion. Now again, it's critical to have strong assurance. And that's, I'm, I mean, that's one of the goals of, of this message, is for, to have strong assurance. But you can't turn it around and say strong assurance means definitely we're going to heaven. Strong assurance contributes to joy and peace in believing. Jesus gives abundant assurance to his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, John 10, 28, and 29. 
But it's important to note that just because we think we're being we're saved doesn't mean we are saved. It's what God thinks. And, and a classic example of this is if you're still there in Matthew chapter 7, which is a page after what we read before, um, R.C. Sproul quoted this this morning, Matthew 7, 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the idea, it's the last day and they're standing before God in judgment. And uh, they're saying, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did for you. Surely we're going to get to heaven. You're going to let us in. But he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. So you can have this, um, ex you can have this assurance. They seem to have it. But just because we have assurance in itself doesn't mean that we're going. Some people, you can't convince them. I mean, you see their life and, and, their, and, and you have to wonder. They're, you know, they're, out at the bars and they're, um, you know, hanging around with, with a bunch of women even though they're married and, and they say, but I know I'm saved. And you can't convince them otherwise. Putting our hope of heaven on strong assurance is sure death. Judas must have had assurance if you'd ask him in the days he was with Christ, he'd say, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'm with, I'm, I'm with the Savior. Right? But ultimately, he was filled with Satan and committed suicide. Ignorance and Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if any of you have read that book. It's an outstanding book. I would highly recommend it. But Ignorance was that guy who said, I know I'm going to heaven. But his hope was that, and I think this was, he was addressing the whole matter of um, the Roman Catholic view of justification, where it's that God gives grace so that we can perform deeds up to the requirements that God has for us and then be justified. That's not justification that the Bible teaches. We don't, we, we do need God's grace to help us grow in our obedience, but we'll never be up to speed to God's obedience. So he had his hope in what he's doing. In any case, Mr. Spring says this, the faith of the gospel does not consist in believing that one shall be saved. There is a difference between faith in Jesus Christ and believing that we shall be saved between being actually a partaker of his salvation and the persuasion of our minds that we are partakers. Men may have strong persuasions of their spiritual safety who spoil themselves with their own deceivings. Well, that brings us to the second major point, and this is going to be much more brief, is the one and only all-sufficient hope. So since we're in a small gathering, who can tell me what is the one and only all-sufficient hope? 
This is really to wake you up. Jesus Christ, absolutely. Jesus Christ and him alone in truth. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ, Acts 4.12. And it's only Christ's righteousness which meets the standard and not ours. It's only Christ's blood who cleanses us from our iniquities. Because when we go to judgment, we're going to have all these imperfections, all these failures, even in the moral things we've done, even in our assurance that's faulty, even in the religious activities that we do. All these things are tainted with sin and we fall short and we're going to stand before God with these things on us. What do we do now? Well, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And it's not that Christ gives us grace so that we can perform these deeds perfectly and then God will accept us. That's not the idea. It's that we're imputed righteousness. It's righteousness given to us. So when doubts arise, and the doubts we have are many, because we get discouraged when we don't. Because we know we need to grow in obedience. And we need to grow in a uh, good performing of our religious commitments. You know, in our relationship with the church. And, and when we fail, we can get really discouraged. And we say, woe is me. We fall into sin. Old habits. Old uh, sins that we thought we had dealt with long ago. And now they crop up again, and we're going, oh, my. Am I, I'm not going to make it. I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. Well, of course we're not worthy. Nobody's worthy. Instead, we ought to be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our acceptance. It's not us and, and how much we've accomplished and how much we've grown. We need to grow, but... How much we've grown is not our grounds for acceptance with God. So when we get discouraged over our sins, we point to Jesus Christ. If somebody tries to convince us that we're, um, we're not, you know, points out our sin or something, we ought not to fall into great despair and go, woe is me. Now, we need to grieve over our sins. That, that, I mean, that's good to do. But we don't want to sit there. We don't want to dwell on that uh, so that we're incapacitated in our, in our serving the Lord. Rather, we look to Jesus Christ. We go to him. He who confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We go to the cross and we find righteousness there. That's our ground. So our hope can't be in us. What we've done, what we know, our faith can't be in our faith. Because even our faith is weak. If we had faith of a mustard seed, we'd be able to move mountains. Can we move mountains? No, because our faith is small. So we can't have our faith in our faith. Our repentance and our repent. we can't have our trust and hope in, in our repentance. And our hope can't be in what we believe about our, ourselves. Our faith must be on Jesus Christ and his righteousness. 
It must be upon him and his shed blood for me. That is the only way that you and I are going to enter heaven, putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do that, our, our assurance is unshakable because it's not in anything I've done. It's not in, in my accomplishments because if we're honest with ourselves, our accomplishments are as filthy rags. That's what, the, that's what Isaiah says, right? Well, some applications as we close. First of all, Jesus Christ is the Christian's assurance. And as, as I've just mentioned, are we, are we inconsistent? Have we failed in our devotions? Have we failed in our um, communion with our Lord? Well, we need to grow in that. But we look to the Savior and say, Lord, I failed. Confess your sins, and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. When doubts arise regarding our acceptance with God, we point to the Lord Jesus. But secondly, we can't use Christ as an excuse to continue sinning and failing. And this this is what people will do. Oh, well, I'm pointing to Christ's righteousness so that it's no big deal the way I perform what I do. It is a big deal. Because the scriptures tell us without sanctification, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness. And otherwise, no one will see the Lord. So we must grow in holiness. So that's necessary. But it's never sufficient. We need holiness and we need to grow and we need to, it's the fruit of salvation because if we have the Holy Spirit in us, that Holy Spirit will give us a desire to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. We'll know, we'll want to mourn, we'll we'll be hungry to know more. And then thirdly, when we fail, we can't give up because that's sometimes our tendency. What's the use? And some will use this as a cop-out. They fail, and then they say, okay, what's the use? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a, I must not be a Christian. God must not be, have elected me. Have you heard that one? And so they just turn away from Christ. That's doom. That's doom for us. Now, when we fail, we go to the cross, and we find righteousness there, and our acceptance with God is in his blood. Christ is given to be our provision for sin. He's our advocate. He pleads on our behalf. He is our acceptance with God. Well, we could we can continue to go on in this, uh, but I would just remind us all that we need Jesus Christ. That's the reason he came. If righteousness comes from the law, then Christ died needlessly. Isn't that what Galatians says? We need Christ because there's no other means of acceptance. We need the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you've provided it for all those who put their faith and trust in him. And we pray, O Lord, that we would never look at ourselves 
that you'd keep us from fixing our eyes on our accomplishments and instead fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would increase our faith, that you would provide abundant measures of your Holy Spirit so that we can grow in knowledge, so that we can grow in our uh, godliness, so that we can grow in our commitment to Christ and his church, and so that we can grow in our assurance. Lord, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.